From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. The time is coming when your car is going to drive itself. But will you buy such a car? Will you feel secure in such a car? That's being studied now at the University of Washington. Don McKenzie is an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering. And you came up with a study to try and assess just how people might accept the idea of sitting in a car without a steering wheel. Yeah, so we're really interested looking ahead uh, how many people might use automated vehicles and how much more they might drive. So one of the things we know is the biggest cost of driving is the cost of the driver's time. And so if we free people up to do other things while they're traveling, then we would expect them to travel more. Basically, autonomous vehicles will make driving safer, cheaper, and more convenient. When you make something safer, cheaper, and more convenient, we expect people to do more of it. And we wanted to know how much more. So you pulled it on the basis of price? Yes. So we ran an experiment where we asked people to make a hypothetical choice between driving themselves or riding in a ride-hailing car like Uber or Lyft. And in some cases, we told them that that ride-hailing vehicle was autonomous. And in some cases, we said it had a human driver. What we found is when it has a human driver, their cost of time goes down. So having someone else drive you is preferable to driving yourself. But when we said that it would be an autonomous car with a robot driving, the cost of their time went up. Why? so, so in other well, words, they felt they were they were sacrificing more by driving in an autonomous vehicle. We we think right now. So many of these folks have probably never ridden in an autonomous vehicle. This is not really a, a technology that's out there on the the mass market right now. What we think is right now that people are probably skeptical of that technology. They would be a little apprehensive about getting into a car and turning over control to a robot. Um, and so we think that 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 increase in the cost of time basically is a, a stress premium. It's the additional. Uh, you know, f- huh. factor of, of... So they felt that even with the autonomous vehicle, they would still feel obligated to pay attention to where they were going and be prepared to press the big red button? Well, we don't know. We didn't dig in that deeply. We have some other work ongoing where we're getting a little more into the psychology of this and trying to tie in their perceptions of safety and their general risk attitudes and so on. But for this study, this is a little pilot study, really. Um, what we're really focused on is just how does it affect that that value of time? This is really important, though, because there are other people out there doing research right now, asking people how they feel about automated vehicles. And and I think what this reflects is that what people say they would do today doesn't necessarily reflect what we think they'd actually do in the future. Because, again, there's this skepticism, this nervousness, rightfully so, this lack of familiarity with this technology. Yeah, you don't really know. So maybe once they say, because it's important, you, you don't want to invest billions into autonomous vehicles if nobody's going to use them. Right. Well, I think this is one of these things. If you look at, you know, there's this this quote that I love from a Tesla customer talking about his autopilot system. He says, it was the same distance, but the commute felt like it took half the time. Uh-huh. So when we have these partial automation systems, and, and a Tesla autopilot is not a, a true driverless system, right. um, but the, even these partial automation systems, many people who use them love them, right? And as they become familiar with them, they really do embrace them and trust them and find them to be a great convenience. Yeah. If you were assigning a personal cost to stress, which is how your study worked, right, I would think that driving your own car in Seattle traffic would pin the needle. Right. So our sample was not just in Seattle. It was uh-huh. nationwide. And, of course, most people don't like driving in traffic. I think even people who like driving don't like driving in traffic. Um, this, we asked people, this was a, in the context of a 15-mile commute trip we asked people about. 
um, what we found was basically the cost of their time uh, based on the choices they were making. It was it was suggesting the cost of their time is worth about $24 an hour. Mm-hmm. So basically people would pay about $24 to save an hour of, of time. Um, when when we told them they'd be in an autonomous vehicle, that time went up to about $28. Wow. So that stress premium, they're saying weird. riding in this car would actually be $4 worse. But again, we think in the future, if this technology takes off, if it proves viable commercially, it's going to be because people embrace it and and learn and, and accept it. Um, and so if that happens, we think that the way they'd behave in the future is more similar to how they would behave towards a, a ride-hailing car like an Uber or a Lyft today. You think about this, you know, being in a driverless car, it's a lot like being in an Uber or a taxi yeah. or a Lyft. You know, you don't have to drive. You don't have to search for parking. You just get in the car and tell it where to go. And you can do other productive or relaxing things along the way. You can eat. You can nap. You can catch up on email. You can game. Uh, whatever you want to do. Um, and so we think that that is, is probably more how people would respond in the future. And so that was kind of the twist in this study is we used ride hailing services as this stand in for how we think people will respond to, to automated vehicles in the future. And that goes the other way. We find that their value of time goes down by about 13%. And if we point out to them, if we remind them, hey, you can do these other things, this multitasking. Then that, they feel that goes, better about it. Yeah, it goes way down. And so we think it could translate to about between 5 and 20% more travel. So once the autonomous vehicle marketing campaign kicks in, things should be fine. Uh, if people buy it, and, and I think what's really going to matter is, is the technology actually safe? And no amount of clever marketing is going to right. overcome a technology that doesn't work. This idea of assigning a value to your commute time and that it's $24, $24 an hour, that explains why the express toll lanes are popular, doesn't it? People are willing to pay to save time. The single biggest cost of operating a vehicle is generally the cost of the driver's time. Single biggest cost, over half the total cost in many cases, is your your time as a driver. Mm-hmm. Why don't more take the bus then? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, it's a different experience, right? Uh, it's not a private space. Um, in many cases, it's not just different time quality, but different quantity. So it's slower in many cases. Uh, so many people do like the bus and where transit works best is where uh, it's not overcrowded and where it's fast and reliable and gets people from where they want to go to where they want to go. If, if buses had uh, private compartments like some trains do, that would make it more popular? That sounds like an interesting research question. If anyone wants <laughs> to fund that, we'll be the first to do that work. Um, I, I'm curious about um, some of the, the bigger issues you deal with as a, uh, as a transportation researcher. If you had your way, if you were running things, how would you redesign Seattle's transportation system? Wow. Um, I think that this is going to be not popular. One of the things we really need to think about is uh, charging people for the space they take up on our roads. Uh, this is the single most important thing we can do to reduce congestion. Um, I think a lot long- So you'd rent, basically rent a moving piece of pavement. Uh there are many different ways you can implement this, and, and new technology is is making this a lot more dynamic. You brought up the the toll lanes, the express toll lanes, yeah. a few minutes ago, and how popular those have been. I mean, they're, they're both unpopular. Uh, people don't like paying, uh, but they're popular in that people do right. pay. They pay. And, um, you know, the I think the difference here is, you know, many other things. We expect high quality, and we know that if we want high quality, we have to pay for it. Almost any other thing, when you buy your car itself, if you want a good car, you're going to pay more money. Well, if you want a good road uh, that's uncongested and, and well-maintained, you're going to have to pay for that. Um, 
and so that so that's one of the things. But simultaneously with that, we need to ensure that people have alternatives. So having uh, an environment where uh, people can have alternatives to driving. So high quality transit is one. Uh, ride hailing services is another. Car sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, having a whole range of services available to people to help them get from where they are to where they need to be. Right. That has to go hand in hand. But with, for a lot uh, of people, nothing is ever going to replace the privacy and the versatility of being in a car. What's amazing to me is that we we charge for every other form of transportation, but we still operate under the illusion that driving is, quote, free, right? Don't we have the technology so that you could have an app on your phone where you would not just input your trip like you do now to follow the navigation, but actually make a reservation so that the app would tell you when is the best time to leave and what it will cost you to leave at 6 in the morning as opposed to 8 in the morning? Yeah, so there are many different ways you could implement this technically. One could be the prices could be completely dynamic, you know, real time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from an economic efficiency standpoint, that would be ideal. But people really, I don't think, would like the idea that leaving at 8 a.m. could have one price one day and a different price sure, the next Sure, but what day. they so really hate, though, is, is sitting in an hour backup, or actually you never really know how long the backup's going to be, and having no idea where when you will arrive. The trade-off of the app would be, it may cost you money, but it would be a guaranteed arrival time, be a guaranteed trip. Yeah, well, and, and of course, there's very few things that are absolutely certain in life. Um, and we know that collisions are another, you know, it's not just volume, but it's But with a system like this, Don, you would have the money to have true instantaneous collision response, right? I mean, the problem with having all the tow trucks positioned there is that most of the time they're sitting around waiting for something to do. It gets very expensive. Uh, I think we'd have enough money that um, eventually you'd be able to send in a helicopter with a grappling hook to actually lift a disabled car off the bridge and drop it at the repair shop. That's a heck of a vision. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying to fix the thing without having to – here, here's the thing I'm trying to avoid is to build a new freeway. I mean, a whole new freeway, which is what the town ultimately would need if it keeps growing like it is. And there's, there's no more expensive alternative that, than that. Yet building new capacity is very difficult, um, and it's it's not even a matter of want. In many cases, it's an issue of, like, we don't have space. It's Certainly in the city right. of Seattle, we are space-constrained, so unless we start double or triple decking, um, and you want to talk expensive, yeah, wow. That's crazy. Um, so, no, this is this is the thing, and, and we know that there's a ton of unused capacity in the number of empty seats moving along that, right. that freeway. Uh, we also know that we can move many, many more people through a lane um, if we have them in a bus. So you can fit one bus in the space of a couple of cars and it holds you mm-hmm. know, 20 times the number of people. Here's another option. What about a single occupancy car? Any car with literally one seat? Yeah, so that's that's probably not as space efficient as a bus, uh, but this is this is another concept and we've looked at this in other aspects of our work. I don't know, that's maybe less of a solution for congestion, but we think there's a ton of potential there to reduce energy consumption. Yeah. So in some of our other work, we've looked, we think by going to these single occupancy vehicles uh, or single occupant, one person uh, sized cars, you could cut energy consumption, you know, by about half or so. Um, you know, if you use those for all the one person trips that we make. Do you think that this idea of um, smart cars, they can platoon themselves and, and, and then run with a very, very at, at high speed with very narrow following distances in order to, you know, s- save space? Uh, is that workable or is that a recipe for disaster? 
it's like you've read some of my earlier works. We looked at this <laughs> a couple of years ago. Uh, we didn't look so much at the technical feasibility and, and the safety aspect. Um, one thing we know is that platooning can can cut aerodynamic losses. It can save energy, possibly up to about 20% uh, of your energy consumption per mile could be saved by platooning vehicles. Certainly, you get more of a of a savings by going to smaller vehicles or putting more people in the vehicles but platooning does offer that benefit it can increase capacity but again if you put three priuses bumper to bumper okay then you're going to get maybe 15 people uh at, you know in those three those mm-hmm. three priuses uh in the same length of road space you can fit a standard city bus with up yeah. to 80 people so you're not really going to get the the capacity benefit, and those things are, are again they're literally bumper to bumper, and so it gives you very little margin for error. Yeah. You know we do know that driver error causes about ninety percent of crashes or more, um, but that doesn't mean that an autonomous car could prevent a hundred percent of those, or that it wouldn't you know cause some crashes uh, due to its own deficiencies. So you know running things you know inches apart gives you very little margin for error i suspect that crashes crashes would be less frequent but perhaps more severe when more they severe, do occur. Yeah. are all the autonomous technologies dependent on having a real-time connection to the internet uh so i would say that it probably more important than a real-time or a, a connection to the internet um is a connection directly between vehicles between vehicles yeah so for for safety critical applications you need an extremely reliable uh low latency you know very fast reliable connection between vehicles they're they're and a common language that they speak right uh so you need to standardize the messages and so dot has been but you in other words so you wouldn't necessarily need a real-time internet connection because i mean of course my next question would be what happens when the internet goes down as it always does so 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 there's 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 a, a school of thought that says we can run this through you know 5g wireless networks that are that are emerging right now um, again, as a user of a phone, uh, you know, if you're talking about commercial wireless networks, they're very good for things that that I would say are not safety critical. Right. Um, it, you need to be sure that that connection is not going to go down. So I think a, a dedicated link, vehicle to vehicle, is probably the safest and most reliable way to do that. There are there are also um, and, and you can certainly at a minimum you can say you can run that system better and more efficiently with that direct connection. You know the Google approach or the Waymo approach to automating vehicles is they don't want to rely on vehicle to vehicle communication. They want really? those things to operate independently. That's well, a much hard, much harder problem technically to solve yeah, if, I mean, if you don't have that direct vehicle to vehicle communication. They want continuous vehicular learning, I believe, which can only be managed if you have a a remote connection to a giant computer somewhere. Right? So so you do so almost all of these are going to need some kind of connection to the internet for mm-hmm. uh for obtaining information and updating algorithms and and so on. Um you know, so updates and access to maps and and you know, maps are continually evolving. You need that kind of data. Um where you need that direct vehicle to vehicle communication is for these safety critical things that you know absolutely must get through within, you know, milliseconds. Um but almost any of these are going to need some kind of connection, but not necessarily something that's 100% reliable and extremely low latency all the time. Do you think you'll ever have a vehicle where you can just eliminate the steering wheel and the brake entirely? Uh, someday, yeah, but I don't, I don't know. And then there are companies who are, who are working towards that. I tend to be skeptical that consumers will embrace that. Um, so I tend to think that the way this goes is probably through incremental 
uh, levels increasingly increment increasing incrementally the levels of automation in our vehicles. So we have these autopilot systems in Teslas, and we have GM and other OEMs coming out, uh, automakers coming out with you know increasingly advanced partial automation systems. And I think that's probably the path forward. And at some point, people will realize like, hey, you know, I never use the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. And at that point, and that's I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years out. At, th- at that point, people are like, I guess I don't need the steering wheel anymore. Is that the timeline? When do you think the first commercially viable and uh, NTSB-approved autonomous vehicle will appear on the road? Oh, man, that's a hard question. And part of it depends on whether we're talking about what SAE, um, the Society of Automotive Engineers, calls level four or level five. And so a level four automated vehicle is one that can sort of operate itself safely without a human backup driver, mm-hmm. but within a certain defined geographic area. And a level five is that can do that and it can do it anywhere. And I think the gap between, we're realizing now the, the gap between something that can drive itself and something that can drive itself anywhere, anytime, in any conditions is actually really huge. That's actually maybe one of the bigger gaps. So something that can operate within the city of Seattle, um, you know, or within downtown Seattle is probably closer at hand than something that can operate anywhere in Washington state. Can you really be only partially pregnant, so to speak? I mean, when you when you do this, because it, it seems to me that you have you'll have one set of autonomous vehicles operating under under certain rules, and traditional vehicles operating under you know the existing human rules, which can be arbitrary from time to time. Can they can they coexist? So this is one of the challenges that a lot of what makes the system work today are the little informal ways that we break the rules. Um, and so you think about how to how to intersection, how do four-way stops actually work? How do people get into traffic at a T intersection, you know, at an uh, unsigned or un- unsignalized T intersection? There's a lot of, like, bending of the rules that happens there. And, um, you know, when you're passing a cyclist, um, you know, do you have to cross a double yellow line to give a cyclist mm-hmm. a, a, an appropriate amount of space? How does an automated vehicle deal with that? Do you program it to break the law? Um, and so this, that now we're getting outside of, of my area of expertise. I know there are folks working about this, uh, working on this. Um, you know, this is sort of a perennial topic of conversation at the big automated yeah. vehicles symposium every summer. Um, it's, it, it's a hard problem. I know that my uh, my Prius has a a driving style button you can press for full power or you know EV power, and um, I imagine the future vehicles will have the uh, the goody two shoes button and the Rambo button, so you can decide how you want to drive. But in that case, you know who who gets the liability for any accidents. Yeah, uh, well, and and there's another issue too, which is uh, it there's variation it, within a place like Seattle. You've got different people with different different driving styles. You also know that there's very different driving styles elsewhere in the country. So um, if you go to Southern California, uh, everyone's mm-hmm. driving 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. If right. you go to Boston, everyone's tailgating and, and, and cutting each other off. So how do you, and, and, and it's almost, in some cases, it's almost less safe if you're strictly following the rules in those places right. in a way that, that takes you away and cause you, you have to, to differ from the, you have the to dominant join the local mode of driving. Driving culture. That's so there's there, there's a there's a cult, yeah, as you say there's a culture, a set of norms, and uh, and and all these unwritten rules uh, that that emerge in different parts of the country. I know when I moved back out here from Boston six years ago, I would be driving and I'd I'd sort of find myself thinking, "Whoa, I'm a jerk." 
you know, <laughs> not, you know, not, you know, it's like, well, I'm driving the way I've been driving for the past mm-hmm. six years, but it doesn't fit in here. Right. And so yeah. it takes some time to readjust. And so how do you, how do you ensure that your automated vehicles adaptable and uh, can uh, learn that? How were you a jerk exactly? Oh, it, tailgating, cutting tailgating, people off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So that's so. Every time I see someone do that, that means they're from Boston. Huh? I I don't know that it's unique to Boston. Yeah, but uh. <laughs> well, Don, good luck with your work because I of all the people working at the University of Washington, I think the stuff you do has the most direct effect on people's lives. Yeah, transportation is hugely important. I appreciate the chance to come and talk about it. Don McKenzie is an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Washington, and he also leads the UW's Sustainable Transportation Lab. Don, thanks very much. Thank you. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast, and... You can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's morning news? You can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's morning news. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. 